Well, welcome to Lab Life with the Air Force Research Laboratory. Welcome to a special episode of Lab Life. I'm one of your hosts, Kenneth McNulty. And I'm Michelle Miller. Today we have a special guest, Kevin Rosnick, our AFRL historian, and an even specialer guest coming in in just a minute. That's Dr. Harrison, or Jack, Schmidt. He was part of the Apollo 17 mission and the last man to step foot on the moon. Well, actually, Ken, there's a uh, debate about this. So Gene Cernan and Jack Schmidt landed together on Apollo 17. Cernan gets out first, leaving Jack as the second person to come out and therefore the last person to set foot on the moon for the first time. So he might argue that he was the last person to set foot on the moon. Whereas when the mission was over, he got in first, leaving Cernan on the moon by himself. So technically he's the last person to have his feet planted on the lunar surface. So there's an argument that could be made either way. And I know the two of them had something of a kind of jocular public uh, debate over who was actually the last man on the moon. But uh, Cernan called his book that. So I think uh, he at least gets, uh, gets priority for that claim. So. so you'll be hearing from the 12th man on the moon. In three, two, one. Welcome to the Air Force Research Laboratory, uh, formally formally today for the yeah, show. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we know earlier you, you got to vi- visit our centrifuge. Did they, that bring back memories at all? I don't know that you actually tested here, but during your, your training? No, I never tested in this in the centrifuge at, uh, at this facility, but NASA, by the time I was in the program, NASA had their own centrifuge, and so I had the dubious opportunity of riding that centrifuge to supposedly familiarize myself with what uh, what a launch abort might turn out to feel like. And in that case, they had estimated that the worst case launch abort would be about uh, 16 Gs. 16? And you could survive it. Oh. Well, they were familiarizing us with 12 Gs. So I actually uh, went to a peak G of 12. And uh, afterwards, uh, I began to think about and, and read a little bit about... Uh, high G loads and uh, I, I, I persuaded NASA I think that that was not a good idea to take a high value object like an astronaut and expose them to these very high G loads. <laughs> so you didn't want to go back in today? No that wasn't it. Well I wasn't offered the, the opportunity. Oh and, uh, man, we'll have to let somebody and, know and about they were that. In the middle of, they were middle of, in the middle of evaluating the uh, undergraduate pilot training uh, candidates uh, for Air Force uh, Air Training Command, I guess, and so uh, I probably would have uh, reneged on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Don't blame there. Well, we we'd like for our listeners to get um, you know understanding of of the work you did as a geologist that uh, was part of the Apollo 17 mission. Could you tell us how you got started um, on that pathway? Well, that uh, pathway to being a geologist probably started with my father, who was a geologist, and I was his field assistant as a grade school and high school student. I sort of acted at his his donkey or his burrow <laughs> carrying samples, and then ultimately uh, did surveying for him before I went to college. And, I, and it, uh, when I went to college, I had planned to, uh, from high school, be the world's greatest physicist coming out of a small school in uh, southern New Mexico. And I very soon realized that the world's greatest physicists were sitting on either side of me in my (laughs) classes and not where I was sitting. So it was uh, a a very pleasant transition to go uh, specifically to uh, major in geology at uh, Caltech and then uh, uh, continued that in my graduate work at Harvard. And going from there then, so is this, were you always on the track to eventually go to the moon or is that something that kind of showed up on your doorstep? No, I had not really considered uh, thinking much about the space program until uh, I was in Norway as a Fulbright student in 1957 when Sputnik was launched. I was actually out in the field and only heard about it over the Voice of America on uh, shortwave radio. And when I returned to the University of Oslo, I realized that this had had a tremendous impact on the foreign students that were there. They they were very much concerned about the success of the then Soviet Union with launching the first uh, artificial satellite of the Earth. And that, that caught my interest. I didn't think about actually getting involved in space, but I became interested uh, from a geopolitical point of view about it. 
1964, when I needed to get a job, after getting a newly minted PhD, uh, I contacted uh, a man I had met briefly a few years before, uh, Gene Shoemaker, the famous planetologist, asked, uh, just wrote him a letter seeing if he was doing any hiring because I couldn't find a job anywhere else. And uh, he, it turns out he had written me and our letters crossed in the mail oh, wow. uh, because I had taken the, uh, an exam, the uh, civil service exam for the geological survey. And so I went out to work for Gene and it was just a month or so after I arrived there that NASA and the National Academy of Sciences asked for applications from scientists and engineers for the first scientist astronaut uh, group. And I thought about 10 seconds and said, well, why not? Of <laughs> course. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, volunteered. And then spent a year with the Air Force as a, in pilot training. And then a, a couple, about a year later, went with the Navy for two weeks to learn how to fly helicopters. But in the meantime, I, I, my challenge was to bring my professional experience as a geologist into the astronaut program, while at the same time learning everything everybody else knew mm -hmm. about flying spacecraft. Sure. And so uh, that, that was the challenge and ultimately paid off and I was assigned to the Apollo 17 mission. Yeah. And, and to go back a little bit, what was your time like in test pilot school with the Air Force? Well, it wasn't actually test pilot school, it was just, oh, pilot, just yeah, what pilot, they call yeah. undergraduate pilot yeah. training. It was a regular program. It was a year long, uh, and uh, we uh, started out in a Cessna 172 that they called the T-41, then uh, uh, spent 30 hours in the 172, and then uh, 90 hours in the uh, what was called the uh, T-37, which was also a Cessna twin jet aircraft and then graduated into the uh, T-38 for 120 hours of flying. So it was a, uh, really one of the more interesting parts of my life, I think, was learning to fly jet aircraft at the age of 30. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Where most of the students, uh, in fact, almost all the students, were in their early 20s. So it was a, it was a big difference in age and, uh, and, a, and a big difference, I think, in learning experience. When you're 20 years old, your brain is still much more flexible even than it is at 30 years old. And you have to, as a 30-year-old scientist, I had to unlearn some habits that had formed over the ten, that 10 years, and uh, but uh, did it successfully and, and really enjoyed flying jet aircraft. Did you know that you were going to have to learn to fly when you got in the astronaut program? Oh yes, that was clearly a part of the original program. And that was the appropriate thing to do. I, in fact, I think everybody who becomes an astronaut should learn should become a jet pilot. I think it's a very important psychological as well as technical background to have. And uh, more and more, I think NASA is getting back to that. For a long time, they did not require pilot training, but I think the new groups are learning to fly uh, uh, some aircraft. I'm not real familiar with it. No, it was a very uh, enjoyable experience and one technically challenging as well as uh, personally challenging. You had mentioned earlier today that uh, you had spent uh, eight days at Brooks doing a, uh, your aeromedical exam prior to training, including the centrifuge. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that? Because the, the School of Aviation Medicine is now part of AFRL. Well, uh, when it was at the Brooks Air Force Base, it had become the uh, place where NASA uh, ran their qualifying physicals. Mm -hmm. uh, there, after the... Uh, you send in your application to become a scientist astronaut the first time. There were uh, 1,400, as I recall, applications that NASA received. I thought they would receive a lot more than that, but that, that's what they, they got. And they, uh, on the basis of a FAA pilot's physical, that was winnowed down to 400. And then those 400 were asked to uh, send in their college transcripts and... Uh, I think a little bit other information. And that then was winnowed down. And this this was all being done now by the National Academy of Sciences. Mm -hmm. They had a committee that undertook this further evaluation. And then uh, from that 400, it was uh, cut to 80. And those 80 were asked to send in an essay on what they would do if they uh, happened to be on the moon. Mm -hmm. And it turns out I was working that very pro kind of project for the U.S. Geological Survey on a contract with NASA. And so I, I think I was able to write a fairly 
specific uh, proposal on what what I would do. Did you fulfill that uh, when you eventually got to the well? I, uh, that that actually I think uh, uh, was fulfilled by Neil Armstrong. Okay, <laughs> he did just about everything that I, I think I would have recommended at the time. Sure. Uh, I had the opportunity to do a lot more than that because of, course. of the longer missions. And so, uh, out of that uh, eighty, the National Academy recommended sixteen of us to take the physical at Brooks Air Force Base. This is a very <laughs> roundabout way of getting back <laughs> yes. to Brooks, Brooks Air Force Base. And that, uh, that physical was really the quite an intensive thing, as you might imagine, even for those days, uh, over an eight-day period. That included a run in the Brooks centrifuge. Uh, I, I think they just took us up to about six Gs in that, in that test. But we were instrumented uh, with cardiovascular sensors and that kind of thing, just to see how we would react. And then out of that 16, after an interview with a variety of NASA people down at the Johnson Space Center, then Manned Spacecraft Center, uh, that it included Deke Slayton and, and Dr. Uh, Chuck Berry and people like that. Alan Shepard, I think, was on the uh, review team. Six of us were then uh, selected to uh, become the first group uh, of scientists astronauts, actually the fourth group of astronauts. Right. Out of that six, two, Joe Kerwin and uh, Kurt Michael, already had qualified as jet pilots. Uh, Kerwin was a Navy flight surgeon that had just completed his carrier qualifications, and Kurt Michael had been a, a F-86 Air Force pilot in Korea uh, for five years. Yeah or with the Air Force for five years. The, the, the other four of us had to go to uh, undergraduate pilot training with the Air Force and learn how to fly T-30H, which was the aircraft that NASA was flying at the time. One of those uh, four uh, resigned due to some family uh, difficulties. The three of us then completed that uh, flight training and ended up at uh, NASA in the summer of 1966. Yeah, the, the one that didn't uh, make it through the, the training, you mentioned the family issues, uh, uh, Dwayne uh, Graveline, right? Mm -hmm. um, he had actually been working here at the AeroMed Lab. Uh, he had been uh, AFRL alumni, as it were. So. I'd forgotten that he was here. Yeah. 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 yeah he's one of our guys, but uh, as you say, he didn't, uh, um, obviously the standards for the astronauts were somewhat different at that time than, you know, later on. So something like, uh, you know, any kind of family trouble or whatever would yeah. end up disqualifying you. Yeah, that was a different world. <laughs> right. So kind of going into more of the work with NASA then, um, I know I read that you really helped, in terms of at least doing geological studies, helped get the training a lot better, at least kind of soup it up for future, um, future missions. Uh, what do you, how do you go about doing that? Well, prior to uh, my uh, arrival at the Johnson Space Center on a permanent status, the training of the astronauts in geology and science in general, but particularly geology, was more like uh, college field trips, and you know you might call it GE1 kind of uh, training. And uh, I uh, evaluated this uh, for a little while, and then put together a plan by which the astronaut office would take over control of the training. They did not have control of it. It was left, unlike all the other training, which was run by the astronaut office, they had let the science side of it be run by another organization in, that, in, uh, in NASA, in the, in the, at the Manned Spacecraft Center. And so I recommended to Al Shepard that we take control of it and run it more on a simulation base it with the basically that uh, a week a month you would actually take people out in the field with the equipment that they would be using on their mission and work on real geological problems but learning how to use the equipment getting muscle memory of, of all that and Al said uh, well sure uh, go ahead uh, if Jim Lovell will uh, take it on for Apollo 13 well then fine and Lovell was very interested he and Fred Hayes became very good students, and their backup crew, which was uh, John Young and Charlie Duke, then later on would fly Apollo 16, so they got involved early on as well. Some There was some feedback into the Apollo 12 mission with Pete Conrad and Al Bean, uh, and, uh, and so uh, it started to have an immediate impact on the amount of understanding that the crews had about geological 
questions that we were trying to answer. Yeah. Uh, and and enough familiarity that they they could collect very very good suites of, of samples on each of the missions. Uh, so it had a tremendous payoff for science, I think, to um, have this much more organized, much more simulation based training program and there was more time to train as well. I mean each of the missions was longer and longer period between each mission. And you mentioned you were were you the head of this simulation that like you helped run a lot of it or just Well I, I ran the first uh, with Jim Lovell mm -hmm. I ran the first one. But then I was assigned to the backup crew of Apollo fifteen, so I was deep into the training cycle. Uh, and so I didn't not but it but it had enough momentum with the uh, uh, geological survey running the logistics and others uh, being more and more involved in, in doing that, but with an overall uh, oversight by the astronaut office. It, 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 it did continue to work very well for each of the missions much after uh, I left the day-to-day uh, -day operation. That's great. And kind of going into that, that field then, um, so a lot of the simulations or sims you had to run um, to become an astronaut, can you kind of go into what some of those were, what kind of that day-to-day -day can almost look like? Well, the uh, actual geological training was very much like uh, uh, what a field geologist would normally do in a, a particular field site here on Earth. They, uh, and uh, with uh, observation, photography, and sampling uh, being the, uh, the main uh, activities. The uh, training for actual flights involved hours and hours in simulators with uh, not only getting familiar with the normal operation of the spacecraft, the various spacecraft, but also uh, with how to deal with anomalies as they came up. And, and that initially those kind of things were done by the, uh, the simulator operators at uh, both at the Johnson Space Center and the Kennedy Space Center. We had simulators at both locations. But also we would have these uh, more extensive, what they call mission simulations, mission sims, that involved the whole network of communications, involved the mission control center or the launch control center. It would, they were much more elaborate uh, simulations, but also primarily dealing with uh, how to handle failures of various kinds. Uh, we almost never did a regular mission as a simulation. And that was, that, the best way to train is to, is to have to deal with uh, unexpected anomalies. And these simulations actually got people so involved that they forgot they were doing a simulation. I mean, it really was, they got to be very emotional issues uh, or events. Besides the geological training, uh, about three quarters of our time, uh, at least on Apollo, on the last three missions, was made up in, in a variety of ways of becoming extremely familiar with spacecraft systems and spacecraft operations. And then we've kind of you know transitioned through your journey of you know back helping your your, your dad when you first started out, getting interested in geology to your actual training with, with NASA and and with the Air Force to learn to fly. What could you recount a little bit of the? mission itself when you went to space? Well, our mission uh, was uh, targeted, as uh, since it was the last mission, to what was thought to be the most uh, complex but and accessible uh, location on the moon, and it was a deep mountain valley called Tars Littoral in the northeastern uh, part of the moon uh, that uh, would expose us to a whole variety of different uh, geological phenomena and do it in three dimensions because it was a deep valley. It was deep in the Grand Canyon, as a matter of fact. Oh, wow. Jeez. It was an ideal place for me to apply my experience uh, as a field geologist. Uh, and, uh, and, and I think that had something to do with picking a, a complex site like that because you would have somebody there that was used to dealing with those kinds of uh, geological problems. The main uh, benefit of the entire Apollo program scientifically probably is that we began to understand what the early history of the Earth was like. Uh, it was extremely violent, the first billion years of Earth history, extremely violent, uh, but evidence of that has been lost to us because the Earth's so active geologically, it's almost entirely erased that, uh, that early history. Uh, or at least so far we haven't found very many clues of what it was on Earth.
whereas the moon stopped much of its evolution about a bit, uh, after about a billion years. And so it's recorded what the early history of the solar system was like. And it was an extremely violent period. Uh, huge impacts were occurring on the surfaces of the planets, and particularly the moon and the Earth, and about 16 times more on the Earth than on the moon, but the, the moon still tells us what those impacts were like. There's one basin on the moon that's 3,200 kilometers in diameter uh, formed by an impact, another one that's 2,500 kilometers in diameter, and, 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 and at least 40 or 50 that are 300 kilometers in diameter. Well, imagine all of that happening on the Earth so it was a, you know it was violent, but you also know that's when complex organic molecules were getting organized and ultimately, ultimately becoming self-replicating. So that's, that's a puzzle that we're still struggling with. How did that happen? And how, how did the, uh, the when mole some molecules got organized, how did they survive in order to stay organized? And I think there's some answers, but nevertheless, uh, that, is, uh, that is an ongoing issue. But at least now we know what the question is. <laughs> we didn't know those questions before we went to the moon. Uh, also now, and just recently, uh, we're beginning to be able to do what Gene Shoemaker, uh, my boss at the Geological Survey and Flagstaff in 1964, what Gene Shoemaker said we were going to be able to do, and that is understand the history of the sun because the lunar surface uh, is at a 10 to the minus 12 vacuum. There's a, basically no, no atmosphere. And so it's being exposed to uh, whatever the sun's doing uh, throughout uh, a great deal of time. And, and if we can sample the debris layer properly that covers the moon, we will get a record of what the sun was doing. And we just now, I think, are beginning to figure out how to do that with the drill cores that we've taken on Apollo. And, uh, and looking at the variation in solar isotopic ratios and the like uh, is now giving us some insights into the history of the sun. And one of them is that uh, we may now see evidence of a warming of the sun, an increase in luminosity of the sun, and therefore a warming of the earth about the same time as what we call the Cambrian explosion. It, that occurred now pretty well dated about 540 million years ago on Earth when the diversity of life and the quantity of life just exploded. And it's generally been assumed, and for good reason, that that was because the Earth got warmer and life likes warmth. Now I think we're seeing evidence of that having occurred in the lunar soils, uh, have, having been recorded in the lunar soils. Uh, still don't have precise dates yet on the moon, uh, close enough that we can be absolutely certain, but it's a, it's a, it looks like we're getting close. Wow. So going along that then, uh, what other pieces of like evidence or minerals did you pull off the moon that's really helped today? Because you said the core samples are starting to kind of find out that warming cycle. Yeah. Is there anything else you guys found that you're still developing today or has helped influence our studies? Well, the, the discovery of... Uh, what the uh, solar wind, uh, the particles coming from the sun, what the solar wind has deposited uh, in the lunar soils with the examination of a, of a sample that Neil Armstrong collected, uh, 10084 if you like numbers, <laughs> uh, discovered that those resources are going to be extraordinarily valuable not only when we begin to settle the moon but also when we need the same resources for trips to Mars, at least to catalyze trips to Mars. Ultimately, Mars can supply its own resources, but not initially, and the Moon almost certainly is the best source of water, hydrogen, oxygen, uh, carbon, and nitrogen compounds, which uh, you can bring out of this debris layer that covers the Moon. But also, there's one resource, uh, it's a helium resource, it's a light isotope of helium called helium-3, that if we had it here on Earth would, would almost certainly be powering fusion power plants because they're environmentally benign. Uh, they, they don't create radioactive waste. They're what we call aneutronic uh, power plants. Uh, helium-3 fused, helium fused with itself produces no neutrons, which are the bad actors producing nuclear waste. And uh, helium-3 uh, fused with deuterium produces only a very few neutrons, which uh, actually uh, the waste that would be created would be equivalent to uh, medical 
uh, nuclear medical waste. So quite easy to handle. And so the, the, the resource is on the moon, but we don't have it here on Earth. And so the question is, can, will, will the economics ever justify uh, bringing helium-3 back to Earth to fuel these uh, very, very uh, ideal power plants here on Earth? Clean, no nuclear waste, uh, highly efficient, much more efficient than uh, existing power plants uh, can be. You mentioned this is something we found after. Were you actively going to find evidence of helium-3? No, it had been predicted that the, uh, the lunar soils might have absorbed uh, these isotopes. Uh, but we didn't know in what quantity, uh, you know, whether they were they're absorbed and lost or what. But we knew the moon was exposed to the solar wind, and we knew that process, nuclear processes in the sun were producing uh, helium and helium isotopes as well as others. Uh, but until we actually had a sample of the soil, we didn't know whether this was significant or not. And it was Neil's sample of the uh, soil at Apollo 11, Tranquility Base, that gave us our first strong indications that this was important and would and potentially important for the long for the future of uh, humanity as a matter of fact and also maybe f important for uh, spacecraft propulsion uh, between the planets because fusion power fusion rockets are ideal for working in space if you have the fuels they uh, space is an ideal place for a fusion rocket because you already have the vacuum and, uh, and so uh, the, uh, uh, being able to accelerate between the Earth and Mars, for example, and getting there in a much shorter amount of time can be extremely valuable, uh, particularly physiologically, to avoid uh, long-term exposure to space radiation. And that's kind of touching on gathering a lot of the resources on the moon itself. Um, how, for in terms of radiation, I know you had the protective shielding, but how long were you guys allowed to stay on the surface and still stay within safe limits of the radiation? Well, we didn't have, the radiation problems in space are due to uh, what are called corona mass ejections or solar, solar flares. Uh, the, the normal activity of the sun, like today, as a matter of fact, the sun's been very quiet for months and months and months, much longer than anybody expected. Uh, that's not much of a problem okay. for humans. It's the big flares that are a problem. And we just assumed, we, we just assumed that risk with Apollo. Uh, we didn't have any way of, uh, of within the mass capabilities that we had of protecting the spacecraft or the human beings in it uh, from those kind of events. Uh, that uh, now in the future, I, I you know clearly we we know now that there are ways to do that. We didn't know much about it at the time. During your time on the moon, we talked about collections and stuff. Are there any? Were there certain samples that uh, really produced a lot of insight um, as a, a geologist and a, a scientist when you when we got back to process them? Well, we added information about this early history of the Earth uh, and and how long various uh, the, these uh, these violent impacts occurred. That was added by our uh, particularly mm -hmm. by sampling the the walls of the valley on either side of us. We did gather, um, and we gathered the best core for understanding the history of the sun. That's where most of this solar history information okay. is coming from right now. But most of the other samples relate more to the history of the moon and, uh, and to its internal structure and to its origin, as a matter of fact. And one of the samples that, uh, that I discovered, and uh, one of the deposits I discovered and the samples we brought back, were of this orange soil, this volcanic ash. And uh, it is, uh, this ash was produced by what we call pyroclastic eruptions, much like what we've seen recently in Hawaii, gas-driven eruptions of, of hot magma. And on the moon, when those happen at the surface, because of the vacuum that's there and the low gravity, the magma turns into extremely fine particles. Uh, and not like splatter as you see in Hawaii, but very fine particles that are distributed over at least six times farther than they would normally have been distributed here on Earth. So uh, these ash deposits are different, but they're still understandable in the light of what we know about volcanic eruptions here on Earth. And that uh, those volatiles are very important because they came from the interior of the moon, uh, deep interior of the moon, and uh, they include water. About 10 years ago, a group at Brown University 
uh, actually using mo modern, much more advanced technology than we had 50 years ago, uh, actually found water in that ash material that we had, and that that we they sampled. That tells you that uh, there's indigenous water interior in the interior moon, and that has two major implications. One is that it's hard to reconcile a giant impact origin of the moon with the continued presence of volatile components like water and others, many others, in the deep interior of the moon. It, it, it just That is a very difficult thing for these the advocates of giant impact origin of the moon to model. That's a model-based hypothesis, and they haven't figured out how to deal with that yet. And I don't think they will, but we'll see. I've never felt confident that that was the right answer to the origin of the moon. Secondly, it says that the water we apparently are seeing at the poles and permanently shadowed areas may be very ancient water. These volcanic eruptions on the moon occurred three and a half billion years ago. That's with a B, billion years ago. And, it, and, uh, and we know theoretically that some of that water and some of the volatiles will migrate to the poles because they're colder. They go to coal traps. And it may be that what we're seeing is ancient water, not modern water, or not water that's accumulated since. So mm -hmm. until we sample that, that, those areas at the poles, we really won't know. And that, even though NASA may not totally agree with what I'm saying, the samples that uh, they would get if they went to the South Pole uh, and sampled some of these permanently shadowed areas, or even areas that are just colder than, than near the equator, uh, may tell us uh, very quickly uh, through isotopic uh, analysis, the origin of the water that we're seeing from orbit uh, in those two uh, polar regions. You mentioned uh, modern testing of samples that you took deca decades ago, and I know last week I believe there was a new core uh, that had been, I don't want to say in storage, <laughs> it's the wrong word, but no, it, 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 no, literally, it literally. was in storage, it was in cold storage, frozen. Uh, uh, now, the, the core that was opened last week. Uh, is the top of the core that actually was put into cold storage. Okay. The core that was opened last week had not been opened, but it had not been kept in cold storage. And it had been x-rayed 50 years ago, almost. Uh, so we knew a little bit about the inside, what was in that core, but it had never seen the light of day, so to speak, until last week. Part of that was practice. Uh, there's a lot of science going to be learned from that upper core, but there's practice also in how to make sure that we do the lower core right that, that may have been preserved not only in, in reasonable vacuum but also in very cold. Uh, that lower core came from as deep as uh, about 70 centimeters. And, and we know that uh, there is a cold trap essentially everywhere on the moon, or at least in the, even in the equatorial region of the moon, at about 80 centimeters. The lunar surface regolith is very insulating, and so even the diurnal solar variations don't reach that deep. Uh, and at, and that, the temperature at about 80 centimeters at the Apollo 17 site as well as elsewhere in the lower latitudes is about minus 20 degrees centigrade. So it is a cold trap, and so volatiles may well have been concentrated there as well. So we'll see. I mean, that's, that's the exciting part of opening these samples. And it's to the credit of the, the scientists and NASA who were watching over these samples early on that they, they knew that technology would advance and ideas would advance. And so let's preserve some of these samples uh, in as close to pristine condition as possible. It can't be totally pristine, but as close as possible. And, and then look at them sometime in the future when, when analytical technology has, has become much more advanced than it was 50 years ago. Yeah, well, it's very exciting. You're still part of kind of that, that team or some, some I advisory. am, I'm on the University of New Mexico team that's, uh, part of, that's one of nine teams that are doing an integrated uh, uh, examination of all these samples that now are being released by NASA. It's more than just the core, there are several others as well, but uh, the core is the most exciting one right now. What new techniques do we have to analyze these samples that we didn't have 50 years ago? Microscopic techniques have become extremely significant. 50 years ago we had optical, mm -hmm. and electron microscopes were just coming into existence. And now you have ion, 
microscopes. You have all sorts of ways in which you can examine these samples in extraordinary detail that we didn't have in those days. You also can do uh, CAT scans of the uh, of the of a rock. You can see what's inside of a rock now without breaking the rock, and so that that wasn't possible 50 years ago. And we can do much more precise isotopic uh, separations of mass spectrometry. Uh, today than we could 50 years ago. So it's just uh, like almost all technology, <laughs> it has matured sure. and uh, and become much more uh, precise than it was then. And and uh, 50 years from now, it'll be even better, <laughs> almost certainly. So, and these rocks will still be around. I mean, the Apollo probe never ended for science. <laughs> right. It really didn't. It'll continue. These uh, these rocks will and soils will continue to be analyzed. It's a very active community. And lots of grad students involved, and I see no reason why it won't continue. Would you have thought that uh, 50 years from then we'd have no new samples from the moon because we haven't been back there to get any new ones? Well, I didn't predict it would be 50 years, although I guess you can explain it uh, in many different ways. Uh, it's nice that at least uh, this administration is beginning to think about getting back hmm. and has a plan to get back. Now, whether they've that plan is going to be funded properly, whether it's going to be organized properly is something that we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, I know the, uh, <clears throat> I think uh, when you were actually on the, the surface of the moon, uh, President Nixon read a uh, proclamation where he said to the effect that um, this was the last time we were going to be on the moon in this century. And I know people back at Mission Control, I think, at least were a little bit kind of stunned by that because they um, obviously knew Apollo was ending, but I don't think anybody really believed that, you know, 30 years from then, we still wouldn't be back again. So, did well, we you? didn't know. My, my objection was he didn't have to say it. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Once you say it, it adds a little bit of finality to yeah. it, doesn't it? Yeah. So are you excited about, about the future of uh, space exploration? Well, I, I, at least there's a lot of interest. I mean, there's private sector interest, there's uh, international interest. Uh, the administration has realized the geopolitical importance, I think, of, of uh, space uh, more so than in the past. And so, yeah, I think it's a, it's a great time for young people to get involved. The NASA has to, and, and others have to create an environment in which young people can be involved. I emphasize young people is because you've got to go back and realize that Apollo was a young person's program. It, uh, the average age of engineers, uh, 400,000 engineers in NASA and in the private sector, was in the 20s. And we need to get back into that kind of environment. Young people bring imagination and stamina and, and uh, patriotism uh, and commitment uh, that uh, after you've been through a few decades, you probably don't have nearly as strongly as you do when you're in your 20s. So uh, I think that's a very, very important component of any future program. And, and the private sector has realized that. If you look at the average age of engineers uh, at Blue Origin and SpaceX and others, they're, they're young. They're in that same range that NASA was uh, during Apollo. you have any, any advice for those young geologists, engineers, you know, scientists that might go back to the moon or Mars or, or anywhere else? Well, get as broad an education as you possibly can. Emphasize mathematics. That's the the tool of the future, in my opinion. Uh, whatever happens, you need to have that math background. And uh, just keep uh, plugging away, and maybe you'll have the chance. That's great. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> Don't depend on luck, but uh, be ready for it when it occurs. I was Googling you, to be honest, to see what you've been involved in. You've been involved uh, recently in, in some research about, I think it was like a landslides in, in Mars or, or act activity on that planet. I'm, I'm working uh, with a team in the... Uh, in London, a scientific team under Tom Mitchell, uh, who is a landslide avalanche expert. And I'm working with them because I wanted them to examine the avalanche that we've identified in the, in the Valley of Taurus Littrell, where I was and I explored, and see if we can't get more information based on their modeling techniques uh, into which we then fit the actual field data that we collected and the sample data. And so that, uh, that is uh, part of what I uh, have been trying to get uh, uh, this group to do, and they are. They're working on it. They've been, they, they had started out working on Mars, and, and uh, actually Tom Mitchell did some fantastic work here in the, in the United States on some uh, big landslides. And that's how I ran into his name. 
And now his team is looking at this, uh, what we call a light mantle avalanche in the Valley of Taurus Littoral. Uh, that uh, is uh, debris that's come off that high mountain that I mentioned, that 7,000-foot mm -hmm. high mountain, and spread out across the valley. And we're trying, uh, probably about 75 million years ago is when it came, and it may have uh, resulted, been activated by an actual fault, uh, earth, a moonquake, okay. <laughs> uh, that uh, caused that avalanche to flow. And But uh, I, I want to see if we can't get more information about what the dynamics of avalanches are, dust avalanches are in uh, in one six gravity and in a vacuum, and how they're fluidized, how you know how volatiles are released in order to keep them fluid enough. Uh, think of a snow avalanche, for example, mm -hmm. very fine particles, and it gets fluidized. If it gets launched, it traps air, and air gets into the in the avalanche, and that's right why they move so quickly, so fast, is that they're really riding in a sense on a cushion of air. Uh, and there's very low friction involved in that. And trying to see whether avalanches uh, in sp in, on the moon and potentially on Mars, how they operate, can we, can we model that? Can we do experiments and, to better understand how that happens? Uh, it's not such a big deal on the moon, mm -hmm. except on, uh, when we get to, if we can understand them on the moon, it's gonna make it easier to understand these on Mars. And some of these on Mars may well be may uh, contain a great deal of ice. And so they become important resource sites on Mars, uh, where they're probably, they're not going to be that on the moon. But still, it's, it's all a question of progressive science of increased understanding of a particular type of phenomena, namely landslide or avalanche type phenomena. So then by understanding I guess how that happens, you're thinking that it could like lead you to resources to sustain time on, on a planet? On, on Mars, yes. Uh, on, the, on the moon, it's mainly a, a sort of a building block. To, if we can understand avalanches on the moon, we can probably better understand them on Mars. And touching on a lot of what you've said, um, what would you want another, if you had more of a say in, like, let's say, the next moon mission? What do you think the next objective should be when we get back to the moon? Well, as soon as possible, we should be, uh, we should be exploring the far side. And this large basin on the far side called South Pole Lakin, which is uh, 2,500 kilometers in diameter, uh, is a very complex basin, uh, but it's one which is, and it's going to take quite a bit of, uh, I think, a number of landings to fully understand what it's going to tell us about the moon and about these huge impacts that were occurring very early in the history of the solar system. The moon records two very clearly, in my mind, probably five not so clearly. And, uh, and Mars has several as well. But of course, we don't see any sign of them here on Earth. And understanding those, uh, the mechanics and the, and the consequences of such an impact on the moon is gonna help us understand what may have been the consequences here on Earth when they occurred. For example, do they relate to the formation of the first continents? And there, there are arguments, complex arguments of why that might be true. Uh, but uh, until we fully understand these basins on the moon, it's going to be hard to say just what, their, what the consequences were of such a large impact here on Earth. If I can continue the, uh, the comparison between the, the moon and Mars, there's something of a debate in the space community about how much of an analog um, learning on the moon, learning how to operate, how to live there, r relates to doing the same things on the moon. Given your experience, uh, is, is going back to the moon a good analog for, for um, developing technologies and learning techniques for, for living and operating uh, on a body that's not the Earth? It's a great place to learn how to do that and to, uh, for generation or two or three, to develop how to manage risks in deep space. Mm -hmm. uh, we haven't been in deep space for 50, almost 50 years. And, uh, and it's going to take another generation or two uh, before we get to Mars. And so we're, we're going to have to relearn all of that, and particularly relearn how to manage risks. Mm -hmm. That's the whole business of working in deep space. Now, you, you, you shouldn't become risk averse, but you should certainly learn how to manage the risks that are there. They don't go away, right. and they haven't gone away. In spite of the advancement of technologies, the risks are still there, but the advancement of technologies gives you more techniques on how to manage those risks. Mm -hmm. 
So I think the moon is a critical place to do that uh, for, for operational risks as well as, as testing equipment, testing, uh, testing various ways to do that, uh, to, to actually operate uh, in deep space. Uh, for one thing, remember Mars is a long way away, mm-hmm. and that means communications are, are not going to be what they were during Apollo. You're, right. you, you can't have a mission control watching over your shoulder as you land on Mars. Right. It's all going to be in the spacecraft and in the people that do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, And you can learn to do that on the moon. You, you don't have to go to Mars to learn how to deal with very long periods of no communication. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, moon's only three days away. Let's take advantage of it. Right. And you're close enough that if something serious does go wrong, you're able to get back home. Well, I, I hope so, yeah. <laughs> yeah right. But you also have to deal with those kind of situations. You'll have to learn how to deal with that. One of the things I think uh, Mars will require, instead of doing what we did in Apollo, and that is if you have a problem during landing, you would abort to come home. Mm-hmm. On Mars, when you're at Mars, you're going to abort to go to, to land. And that, that changes the whole engineering concept of, mm-hmm. of uh, landing on a planet. Yeah. Is, uh, I mean, if you're going to go, spend all the resources, take all the risks to get there, you're going to abort to land and figure out what went wrong once you land it. So that means you're going to have more redundancy, more backup systems, mm-hmm. so that you can indeed abort to land mm-hmm. and then figure out what the problem was. Hmm. Okay. So given your, uh, your training and preparation for walking on the moon, how did that compare with the actual operations on the surface? Um, w- were those techniques you learned, were they, were they valid? Were they, were they helpful for once you got on the, got on the surface? They were helpful in, in learning how to handle tools, how to take pictures uh, quickly, uh, how to do sampling. But as far as becoming familiar with one six gravity, there's no way to do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you can get 30 seconds of it maybe in an aircraft, parabolic flight in an aircraft, right. but uh, that's, that doesn't teach you that. You learn that very quickly once you're there. Human beings are very adaptable. We've got to remember that. Right. So when you, what was your first uh, impression of one six gravity when you step off the, the, the ladder on the, on the limb and hit the surface? Well, and, and then starting to walk, it was like walking on a giant trampoline. Mm-hmm. You're only one sixth your weight, mm-hmm. your same mass, but one sixth your weight. And that, uh, that enables you to uh, really to operate very easily. The only physical difficulty I found in working even in the A7LB uh, pressure suit that we had, spacesuit that we had, uh, was with the gloves. The gloves are pressurized gloves. They're at about 3.7, 3.8 pounds per square inch. And so every, t- every time you want to pick something up, you have to squeeze against that pressure. You have right. to do work. Mm-hmm. And that wears these forearm muscles out very quickly if you're not disciplined about it. And so that was the physical difficulty of working on them. The gloves, and I hope NASA and their new suit work is putting the resources into glove design and, and spacesuit design uh, that uh, will be important to allowing people to operate for multiple days beyond three days, as we did uh, on the moon. The other thing NASA needs to do in those in that suit design is figure out how to reject dust mm-hmm. and not carry dust into the habitat. Mm-hmm. So what advice would you have for future uh, trainers in terms of setting up a, a, a valid training program for those that are going back to the moon? Well, I, I think basically you do the same things that we did with, uh, you know, obviously use different equipment and things like that, but I wouldn't worry about training to work in 1-6 gravity. Really? I would, I would do better muscle training. I'd get trainers. In fact, the <laughs> space station... Uh, assemblers. The astronauts that built the space station did have specialized training, muscle training for these forearm muscles, and they did much better than we did. We, we exercised, we did things, we knew it was an issue, but we didn't have the, the expertise, uh, nor did we hire the expertise in order to get these, uh, these forearms in the kind of condition they should have been. Yeah, you'd have thought by the, the time your mission came along, the last one, that uh, the previous missions would have translated that to you guys and say, hey, squeeze some more tennis balls or uh, that, you know, something. But it, it's going to take more than that. We did all that. Yeah. I mean, we knew it was an issue, hmm. and so we, we did a lot of gripping and things like that, but it wasn't enough. You need specialized 
trainers, and the space station assemblers did get that specialized training. And it made a lot of difference. Uh, and it particularly necessary for them because their suits were at higher pressure mm-hmm. than ours. Right. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think that can be solved. Uh, those issues can be solved, but it's going to take some, uh, some, some more thinking about it, I think. You mentioned the, the dust being a problem. I was looking at pictures, and everything looks, look, looks gray until you see that it's actually a color photograph because you've got a you know, scale of, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's just amazing. That's all dust. What did you experience in, in, on the moon? With regards to dust. Well, anytime you pul- anytime you pulverize almost any rock, it's going to turn gray. Yeah. <laughs> and any group of rocks, as they get mixed up, uh, it turns gray. And and the, half the surface material of the moon is less than 100 microns in average diameter. So it's very fine dust, wow. very fine dust. And one percent is less than a micron in in average diameter so and uh, that's that's probably the biggest physio that's that is a potential physiological issue and one in which a cottage industry is developed to deal with and my argument is that you solve it with engineering solutions just don't let dust into your habitat don't <laughs> breathe it and that's an engineering issue not a physiological issue of how do you keep dust out of your habitat the easiest way is to keep the suits out of the habitat and in fact, there have been some work at the Johnson Space Center on, on getting into the suits through the wall of your spacecraft. And, mm-hmm. and that's, that's a good solution. Ultimately, though, you've got to refurbish those suits. You've got to maintain them. You can't, you can't take hundreds of suits to the, to the moon or Mars. You're going to have to use the suits you have and, and design them so they can be refurbished and maintained for long periods of time. Our suits were qualified for, they said, for six, day, six actual EVAs, excursions onto the moon. Uh, I think they could have done that, but they were starting to wear. The gloves were wearing, the back, the backpacks were wearing, and the, and the like. And so uh, we really need to think very hard and put probably much more resources into suit design than we have uh, in the past. Now NASA is designing a new suit. I don't. I'm not familiar with what they're doing. I don't know how much. They're willing to invest in that in those suits, but it's very, very important. If you're going to take human beings into space, you need to make sure you're using all their capabilities and using them very efficiently. Uh, otherwise, uh, it's not quite clear why you do it. Now, we, we took our brains and our eyes into space, uh, but we, we sort of neglected really being able to use our hands as efficiently as we should have. In fact, it was not very efficient at all. One thing is that as you reach in the glove and against the bladder, you would lift the fingernails. And everybody ended up with, uh, you know, sore nails, uh, blood in the quicks here of your fingers. No matter how closely you clip these nails, you still, that, that wear. And I even wore uh, nylon liners, mm-hmm. and I still had that happen to me. Uh, my partner on the moon had a very difficult time with abrasion. And he didn't wear liners. He probably should have. But I, th- I think his, his hands had swollen over what the gloves had been fitted for. And so he was getting very bad abrasion on his, fing- on his fingers and, and hands. So there's a lot yet to be done to make these suits really the way they ought to be in order to maximize the human potential in space. Yeah, so much design. Yeah, and that's an interesting angle I hadn't really thought of before. Um, in your habitat, do you guys have basic, what medical supplies do you have if you needed help with that? Sav. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was it. That and makes we, sense. We had some. And we At least had, get some to help. Yeah, and we, uh, and uh, my partner really had to use that uh, on his. I did not. There was nothing. I mean, you just keep your nails clipped, and that's about it. And um, talking about a lot of these samples and the moon rocks you gathered beforehand, how familiarized were you were you before you actually went on the mission with what had been gathered beforehand? I was quite familiar, and we tried to familiarize the other guys uh, as best we could in the time available. But I spent a fair amount of time working on the samples and making sure that I was that knew what had been found before. And if you listen to the transcript, every once in a while I will read the transcript, I will uh, mention some sample from Apollo 12 that this looked like. That's cool. <laughs> and today I can't remember what that sample is, but, but then I knew. Then I knew. And I know I read online as well, I won't get the name right, but there was a, a specific mineral or a rock you found that kind of helped showing that the, 
the moon had a magnetic sphere or like actually had a... Uh... Well, through a, a, a leap of geologic interpretation, some samples that, I, that we obtained at uh, Camelot Crater, on the rim of Camelot Crater, have been determined, in my mind at least, to be more or less in place. They've rotated a bit through a, uh, a colleague of mine, a retired astronomer who loves to do manipulate photographs. We were able to reorient those samples down and then a, a, an expert in paleomagnetism mag, uh, at MIT, uh, Ben Weiss, and uh, was able to actually get what he calls a paleo, paleo orientation of the magnetic field from that rock. And, and it's consistent with that rock having been level at one time and giving a, uh, a orientation of the magnetic field as a dipole, much like on the Earth, with the uh, poles roughly in the position of the, of the current rotational poles of the Moon. So uh, that's one of the I think that's the only sample that uh, has come back uh, that uh, from the Apollo missions that we've been able to do a paleo orientation of the lunar magnetic field on. If you'd like to get more, and we and there, we have some other ideas about how to do that from the Apollo 17 uh, samples. They're well documented. We took very strong stereo photography and everything of each sample as we took it, so you could reorient these samples from as they were actually on the moon. And that, that was a plan actually put in place by uh, Gene Shoemaker with the first, with the Apollo 11 mission. It was to always try to d document the position of the sample that before you took it, and then you take a picture afterwards to, so you can tell what sample came out of the picture. And so we have beautiful documentation. And there are new techniques, back to new techniques, <laughs> uh, analytical techniques in software that enabled you to reorient samples much quicker and much more precisely than we thought we could when we had that gnomon, the chart, the color chart you had. That's, yeah. a, that's actually a gnomon that uh, was invented by uh, Shoemaker again in order to control the orientation of these photographs because the, the rod is on a gimbal and the rod seeks the local vertical, so that gives you local vertical. The shadow gives you the azimuth so, uh, uh, that the camera's pointed at. And, uh, and then you have scale in it too, uh, centimeter scales. So you can actually use that to create topographic maps of a site that, uh, in which the sample occurs. Now though, you, can, you don't even need to have that. You can use shadows there's software that allows you to use just the shadows cast by the rocks if you get enough of them statistically in order to do that same thing. That's wild. <laughs> what is and my colleague Ron Wells, who's a retired astronomer I mentioned, uh, has become a real expert in doing that. Now. Wow. And, and he was the one that oriented the, the sample that I mentioned for uh, a paleo-orientation of the magnetic field. I did the geology work and said, yeah, if you move this down into horizontal, You'll ha it'll probably give you uh, the way that sample was originally, but I had no idea how to do it. <laughs> I mean, hey, and he did. Covered every angle, so you got it covered. <laughs> no, you did. Yeah. So, so I just I think the big thoughts and let other people do, <laughs> do the hard work. See, that's teamwork. Work out. <laughs> so with that, then, um, how many cameras did you bring with you to the surface? Two, two okay. Hasselblad cameras, uh, electric drive. They were. Uh, 70 centimeter focal length, I believe, if I remember correctly. 60 or 70, 70 I think is what we had. The magazines were uh, quite large. Uh, the, I think 100 and, I think it was 150 frames on the uh, color, camera, color film and 170 on the black and white film. I had a black and white film in my camera Commander had a color film on his camera. So being a geologist then, you were pretty, you, I mean you knew what pictures you were looking for, would you say you were an avid photographer or just skilled due to your trade? No, uh, no, it was practice. It was just all these trips and you, the camera's mounted here and we got very good at pointing that camera just with your body. Just make sure. Yeah, and, and it was, you, know, you just pointed your body and, and because of that training it was automatic. 
and the pictures are really quite good. They're pretty, yeah, pretty popular. Yeah. <laughs> I happen to bring one of those pictures with us, one of the probably the well, famous now that shots. One wasn't easy. Uh, uh, what's the video of you guys actually the, shooting these? Well, the commander did that, uh, and he had. Uh, I could not have gotten into the into the position he did in order to get that picture. Yeah, it looked like uh, he was having to kind of squat down oh, a little yeah. bit. He, really he, he, he was a little bit taller and he could bend his suit a little bit more than I could okay. to do that. And uh, But that was that was not an easy picture to take. And so was he, the, the cameras didn't have viewfinders, is that correct? Or they did? No, no, you just pointed, yeah. no, you just pointed. Okay, yeah, so I mean to be able to get this sort of composition where you have you and the flag and the, the earth uh, overhead, I mean that's just it's remarkable. Yeah. Well, it, it took several, <laughs> and that's the best. Hey, that's your <laughs> favorite. Is, yeah. Gotta have it covered. <laughs> <laughs> no, that that's an unusual photo. Most of them were just straightforward, move the body, uh, get stereo just by stepping to the side, and uh, it worked out very well. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time, but we've learned a lot today. Um, it was a happy, happy note to leave on. But thank you so much for your time and sharing your thoughts about the future of space and your experiences there. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Wish you all well. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Make sure to follow us on social media at Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube at AF Research Lab. And remember, stay curious. Logging off.